All right, let's do this. Another episode of Keel Conversations. I am your host. My name is Mark, and it is my job to unpack these stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today I'm chatting with Matt, who has enjoyed a varied career within the classical music industry as both an accomplished violinist, teacher, arts administrator, and now the chief executive officer of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. I'm pumped to share this. Matt's mind is just fascinating. He offers such insight coming from someone who has performed at the highest level as a violinist in front of tons of people across the world. And then now as someone who's leading a whole symphony uh, as the CEO. So just really great perspectives. I hope you enjoy this. And if you are, please do leave a little love wherever you're listening. Stars, reviews, they go a long way. And lastly, this episode and the whole podcast is brought to you by Kyo, which is our daily mental fitness app. All you have to do is search KYO in the Apple App Store and it will show up. Thank you so much for your attention and have the absolute best day yet. The first question, and this is the same question to every guest, is is a bit loaded because it's designed to not get a job title, but it's who are you or what defines Matt as a person? Well, I still wake up every morning and look in the mirror and see myself as a violinist that has a day job. (laughs) And by that, I mean I spent most of my life um, focused on what I needed to do to accomplish the very specific goals of being the best musician that I could possibly be. And that um, lifetime of um, habit and the relationship that I have with myself as a violinist um, is like deeply embedded in my psychology. And so uh, the fact that I don't actually play the violin to earn my daily bread right now, I just play it for enjoyment. Sure. Um, and, but the fact that I'm actually not performing nearly as much as I used to when I was a professional uh, means that I, I have this, this residual sense of self as a musician that luckily I'm able to tap into in running the Toronto Symphony Orchestra because I'm never far away from what it feels like yeah. to actually be doing that kind of work for real. Um, and so, so I, uh, I tend, to, I tend to, to see myself as someone who has this really interesting specific background but is kind of doing something unusual and different than what originally my background suggested I might be doing. Yeah. So a couple things on that, and thank you for that. That was a beautiful response. Being in the the place that you're at right now in the sense of um, that you are a violinist, but now you're you're back to playing it for pure pleasure or Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, It it made me think, because I... I'm a photographer and at one point years back I considered okay what if we did I did this full time yeah and there was this 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 set of questioning around well if I do a full time like now it's becoming this hobby and passion into a day job which I was always concerned would you know I'd lose the spark right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so now you're you're kind of back uh in that in that realm how does that feel or is there a shift yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, I've I've been very lucky in that I've I've had some sort of objective capacity to recognize that I I don't ever want to kill the thing that I love, mm-hmm. and I was 
uh, I was lucky enough as a violinist to be really successful. So it, you know, I, I worked really hard and was able to make money doing that as a musician. Um, and so I, I really feel very grateful about that. But at the same time, um, there's, there's a danger in, in playing a Brahms symphony too many times. Okay. Right? There's a familiarity that can genuinely breed contempt when, when your job should be finding the perspective and the avenue to represent some of the greatest works ever written um, in a fresh and energized kind of way. And when you deal with kind of the, the daily vagaries of life, when you're worried about the bills or your kids or whatever it might be, and you show up in your job from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock is to be 100% focused on conveying um, uh, a whole panoply of emotions that come out through whatever work you might be playing with the symphony orchestra. Uh, you, can, you can do that in such a way where it's rejuvenating and it's really mm. exciting, or you can be in a situation where it feels like it's monotonous and it's dull and it's rote. And uh, so one of the things that I think actually happened to me when I was a, a violinist in New York, I was beginning to feel that way, like in spite of the fact that I was um, able to perform with some really wonderful musicians all over the place, um, I, I was I was feeling like it wasn't enough. Okay. And that feeling of um, there being something over the horizon led me to actually start an orchestra when I was in New York. And that creative impulse to design something that had, had certainly everything to do with music, but was a very different part of my brain and skill set, yeah. I absolutely I loved. I loved. And so the kind of creative rush that I got from organizing something like that was not dissimilar from the feeling that I got sitting in the middle of an orchestra and playing a Mahler symphony. Yeah. I'm curious because you can you can draw a parallel um, to what you just brought up to probably many life situations as well as careers. But typically people just continue. Mhm. And there's, there's, there's a difference between noticing the signs and then taking action versus just, oh, okay, you just keep going down and down and down. What do you think helped you actually make that change? And, you know, you obviously had the, the self-awareness to say, you know, if I stay on this path, um, it might be uh, a disadvantage to you, know, you as, a, as a person, for example, mm-hmm. right? You know, I think... Um I think it actually, like, like many things in, in the makeup of who I am, it comes back to um, my training as a musician. So okay. what, what, I, what I mean by that is um, the most successful learning experiences you can have as a violinist is to fail miserably in front of an audience. Because, <laughs> because you, there's no safety net. Um, particularly if it's a solo violin recital, maybe there's a pianist with you, right? But it's clear that either you're doing it the right way and beautifully and you're conveying a story through music or you shouldn't be up there and it's going horribly awry. Yeah. And the, um, the balance of creative excitement and being able to be on stage and present a performance against the anxiety and the fear that drives you to actually excel 
um, I think is an interesting element of sort of mental health, right? You, you have to be just nervous, maybe even a little compulsive enough to get it perfect and beautiful so that you can execute it the way that you ultimately know you need to execute it yeah. to convey the experience that you want to convey to people. Um, or so you can just feel satisfied yourself about doing your best possible work. So the, the process of figuring out how to technically master a passage, interpret a piece of music in such a way that that technical mastery through lots of practice translates into something that can be communicated emotionally, that requires you to, instead of doing the same thing really well over and over mm -hmm. again, it forces you to actually say, what am I screwing up? What do I not do really well? And where do I put a laser beam focus on on like a particular shift or the way a phrase is shaped. And when you when you spend enough time kind of um, uh, paying deep and deeper attention to what's not working, you, you get really efficient and effective at making change quickly and learning. And that's spread out into my my larger life, I think. Sure. And so whenever I've been in a, in a position, when I've been at a job somewhere, not playing the violin, I've been able to kind of recognize that I could stay in this position and I could keep doing what I'm doing and it would be comfortable and interesting and it would, it's nice to know what you're doing. But I also know that I've grown the most as a person um, when I've thrown myself into a situation where uh, I have to sink or swim. Yeah. And so that, 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 challenge that fear factor of the unknown I actually find um, one of the greatest ways to uh, to get better to get different to grow uh, there's a my favorite quote I think it's from Ian e. Forster is that change is the only evidence of life yeah love it yeah. so what is the training you mentioned the training like what I'd imagine there's there's the technical aspects of the of the training, but you talked a lot about the you know the mental fitness and the mental performance. Is that is that a focus when going through let's say the training or the program, or is that you specifically coming from? And I'd love to know where all this is coming from. You know, we have to back up. Like, is this coming from you know, your parents or the family, music, and this mindset? But Sorry, those are two fairly loaded questions. Yeah, yeah. No, I, f I feel like I should tell you that I spent, you know, a decade at a Shaolin temple doing something really impressive. But um, <laughs> basically, it's just me in the practice room with my violin. Okay. No, there, so the, the it's like um, anything that is a high-risk, high-performance activity requires mental acuity first and foremost. Yeah. The, the muscle side of it is, is a byproduct of how you are driving the process yourself from the inside. And for, um, for a violinist, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a journey and a process, right? When I, I started playing the violin when I was seven, and um, I was lucky enough to be in um, the very first public school Suzuki violin program in the state of Texas. So I was mm. born in Houston, Texas. And instead of going to PE class three times a week, I went to a, a, a private lesson, a group lesson, and then a theory lesson, like you know, 30 minutes yeah. of, you know, each time. And what I found was that I had, I had a, a talent and an ability. I, was by, I wasn't a prodigy, but I had enough of an environment at home where my parents absolutely encouraged me. 
were okay. absolutely supportive of it. And it's what I wanted to do. And early on, I saw that there was a cause and effect. That if I actually practiced just enough to play well, people would clap. <laughs> I would get a cookie or I'd get some kind of sure. praise and I would enjoy it. It's like, you know, it's the same way you would train a dog. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Fascinating. Luckily, yeah. It's basic. But. It's, it's very basic. But, but um, and, and so there was not any, you know, when you're seven or eight, at least in my, in my situation, it was, it was really about the social component. So I had some peers around me that were part of the same Suzuki program. Okay. The program requires a parent to actually work with you and to generally be like three months or six months ahead of you in the study of the instrument so that when I practiced, I practiced like with my mother rather than being a kid trying to navigate a very complex instrument um, where if I practiced by myself 15 minutes a day, I would very quickly over the span of a week develop all kinds of terrible technical habits. Sure. But if you have a different kind of oversight, um, nothing, you know, nothing Orwellian, but just think it's a partnership, right? Yeah. But I like that three month, uh, you know, program or being oh, it's ahead great. of the program. It's That's great. Fascinating. Yeah. And actually, if you do it, if you, if you do it the right way, you actually will like sign up a mom or a dad and they will study the violin for three months. And then at the first lesson that the young kid has, the kid doesn't even get to open up the violin case, right? It yeah. just becomes this this magical, mystical thing that you get rewarded with when you <laughs> learn how to hold your feet in the right way, right? Sure. Because the way you stand, your posture, how your body moves is all important. Um, so anyway, the, 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 the experience of, of going through that, being in a very supportive household where, um, where I, was, I was not only allowed to pursue music, I was encouraged, if that was mm-hmm. my passion, that made all the difference. Sure. Super interesting. Um, so, when you think of mental fitness, you're talking about it. Like, what what does that mean to you when I say that that word? Because it's a relatively like there's not a lot of people using it. We use it just because you know when you talk about journaling, there's a lot of kind of preconceived notions of what that is, and people relate to physical fitness a lot mm-hmm. better. Um, but you're probably seeing it and feeling it. I mean, there's a lot of talk around just mindfulness and mm-hmm. the benefits. And I'd imagine like any like top performing athlete or top executive, just like what you're mentioning, top musician, mm-hmm. like it's, there's a huge component to the mind, right? So for you, you know, when I say mental fitness, like what is, what comes to mind? Um, well, I can tell you that I, 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 I think that mental fitness is not happiness. Yeah. I don't think that it is um, uh, constantly feeling like you have a dopamine rush that is working out well for you. Sure. Um, I think mental fitness, in a very narrow way from my own perspective, is, is about um, how I am balancing the challenges of what's flying at me from the external world against what um, my internal reaction is to it. Mm. Um, It's trying to, as often as possible, recognize that one of the few things I can actually control in this world is my reaction to stimulus one way or another. Um, I think mental fitness also requires a certain kind of executive function where you you know, everybody spirals into some sort of um, 
uh, rabbit hole one way or another sure. at some point in their life, right? And being able to recognize that you're in that hole successfully enough to sort of implement tools that you might have at your disposal to, disposal to get out of it, yeah. I think is mental fitness. Um, hmm. I think it's also really important to, um, to not be locked down into a certain psychic state or to okay. have too many assumptions about um, who you are in the world. Um, okay. Because the more you can be open to, as a person, having a number of different sides and personalities and aspects to you know, um, what you might consider your inner self, then the more nimble you're going to be in navigating the world. Sure. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's a really important aspect of staying mentally fit. Okay. So staying on this topic, just mental fitness, I'd love for you to just paint the picture because you've brought this up earlier in the conversation, but you're, you as a performer, you're on stage, you know, you've got a host of people in front of you. What does that feel like for, for the, for the listeners listening to this right now? (laughs) Well, it is, um, there's a phrase in the theater world, something to the effect of once you get the grease paint in your blood, it never goes away. Sure. And there is, there is nothing that, I've ex- that, I, that I have experienced in the world that has the same kind of satisfying high as performing really well in front of people, um, either with, with colleagues in chamber music or in a big orchestra or doing a solo recital. Um, it... it is um, it's a high wire act, and certainly, certainly there's the 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 art side of it, right? That if 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 you're yeah. working on a piece of music that you've been living with for a year, and you're going to perform it on a recital, then you've you've basically developed a kind of relationship with the highs and lows, with tapping into what you need to do from a mechanical standpoint to convey the emotional intent of that art. Mm-hmm. And that's really, um, that's a fun kind of mind game, right? Sure. So, so what, it, what it often winds up being, if you do, if, it, if, if everything's working well and you're on stage, you, um, you, you are relying on muscle memory. You're okay. relying on the success of the way in which you've practiced and accomplished the technical requirements of the piece so that you can execute without being in the mechanical side of your brain when you're actually performing, right? Okay. The last thing that you want to do, and it happens all the time, is you have really talented musicians who are like virtuosic and boring as hell. Like it's like <laughs> that's the last thing you really want to listen to is somebody doing scales all over the place, regardless of how perfect they are after five yeah. minutes. It's like, well, what's the, what's the point? Yeah. So yeah. figuring out what the point is, what the meaning of that piece is, um, is, is the actual goal. It's not playing it really well, playing it in tune, playing it in time. And so when it's working really well and you're in front of people, you're ignoring that pathway of execution. And instead, you're, okay. you're just channeling what you feel like the emotional content of that music really is, how you're shaping the phrase, how you're ending it. And then especially what is magical is when, when you have one of those rare pieces that maybe finishes on a whisper and the music stops and 
a few hundred people in the house stop breathing. And there's that moment of silence oh, wow. that if you can just extend that moment of silence while your bow kind of hovers over the, over the strings, and you know that there is there is a collective sensibility of something having happened that everyone experienced collectively, but they all felt it differently as individuals. Um, and that's, that's magic, to be able to have that kind of um, um, impact. And it doesn't always happen. Sure. And, um, more often than not, it happens when there's a symphony orchestra where you've done like you know, a huge Bruckner symphony or something, and the, the end of the slow movement comes, and you just, like, you just feel the tension in the room because everybody is there. That's, I mean, that's I cool. felt it just you describing that. And think, <laughs> well, wow, you know, that's you, incredible. Well, you know, I mean, that's you know, everybody has. Um, we all have a hunger to connect, right? We're sure. social animals, and we we live in a world that is essentially designed to disconnect us from each other, right? There's there's individually curated ways to distract yourself and to keep you in your house and to not have you risk an encounter with another person, but that's still something fundamental to who we are, right? Yeah. And so when you yeah. have those moments that someone is trying to tell you something through music in a language that's not as prescriptive as words, it opens up this whole opportunity for people to say, wow, like, did, like, could you believe what that felt like? Wasn't that wonderful? Yeah. And um, so it's a very, that's a very special, um, unique way to, to be able to, to run through the world. And I feel, I feel very lucky that I've been able to touch on some of that. Of course. Well, thank you for sharing that because I, I was going to ask you, you know, what the balance is of, of, of walking on stage and being completely performance focused like this will be the best performance of of my life type sort of thing mm -hmm. or and then on the other side like how can i actually get into that flow state and you know be with the whole orchestra and just to feel the music and like you're saying kind of play from the heart mm -hmm. essentially right yeah yeah which um you described nicely so on the flip side then when something does go wrong yeah what, how, how did you personally, and maybe you personally, as well as, you know, maybe some of the best practices you've seen of, of others, how do you recover from something like that? And, or, cause that, there's so many parallels. I mean, it, there's speaking, there's presentations, you know, you can screw something up and either recover or just keep, might as well just pull you off the stage. Right. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. And we've, we've all seen it happen or, you know, experienced it ourselves in like, you know, the fourth grade piano recital where sure. someone gets stuck in a loop or they just they just stop playing and they put their hands down in their laps and and and, and that you know it's the opposite tension in the room of silence right yeah. you know it's it's not oh let's <laughs> all be in this together because it's wonderful it's like oh my god i can't I, I know what it feels like and you just want you want it to stop because it hurts um you know there's there's i've had a, well i've had a number of experiences with completely utterly failing miserably on stage okay. um, but I've also seen some superstars do it um, and and it's it's interesting um, I guess my my first thought is as a performer which is which is it's a different paradigm from being the CEO of an organization mm -hmm. where I think if you make a mistake the idea is to be transparent about the mistake particularly <laughs> if there's financial consequences this is like let people know and sure. fix it. In the performing world, it's it's still show business, right? Yeah. So if you make a mistake on stage, you have to find a way to pretend like you didn't make a mistake. Um, and one of the ways to do that is to, um, let's say you, you, know, you miss a shift or you have a memory lapse. 
and you're not really sure where you are in navigating the actual piece, you start making things up. Oh my God, this it, sounds terrifying. It, it, well, it, but <laughs> it's interesting because what it requires, part, part of the preparation, um, and it's something that people probably don't necessarily recognize, that, that, yeah. that you have to be prepared for every single outcome. And one of those outcomes is I really might have a difficult time playing the 16th passage because it's a bunch of complicated notes and I'm not really sure where they're all going to fit. So in practicing, let's say it's a two-bar phrase of music and it's 16 notes. You would play those 16 notes forward, then you would play them backwards as part of your practice. Okay. Then you would play them in different rhythms. So not what the composer wrote, but in different rhythms that force you into playing it technically in a very different way. And then you would look at the underlying harmony of those two measures. How, how is the chord built? Is it over uh, an E minor chord? So you know that for two bars, you might not know exactly what the notes are, but you know that it's E minor. So that gives you a framework, mm. right? Yeah. And so sometimes just having that kind of plan B as a backup helps you just execute plan A, right? Because in the process of planning consequentially like that, you get a you get you learn more, right? Sure. You, you get more deeply engaged into what it is that you're trying to you know, pull off. I once had um, I think it was my junior recital, no, my a jury. Oh my gosh, my freshman year. Um, I had to play a jury, and one of the things I had to play were a couple of movements of a Bach partita, unaccompanied violin. So okay. you're just it's just the violin. These partitas are are really sort of the pinnacle of violin music. Beautifully written. But they're notoriously difficult because there's lots of ornamentation. And I got lost. I got lost. I didn't know where I was. But I knew enough about the pillars of the harmony because I had studied it that I basically made up something that sounded kind of like Bach. And then I sort of finished the phrase and just made it resolve in the right way. Love it. And and I I got comments from the professors who were like, well, number one, you shouldn't have made the mistake. But really cool that you did it that way because you know that's that's sort of the that's sort of the job. But again, that's a very different it's a very different experience from the world that most of us live in, right? Where um, where too often mistakes are made and we hide them or we're embarrassed or we're fearful of acknowledging them, sure. and they have real ripple effects and can have real negative consequences. Um, and so I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in, um, in trying to, uh, to call things out where appropriate and, and fix it. Right. Um, so yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if that gets to your oh, question. That's, it's, uh, it's unreal because again, for, for me naturally, just because we interview so many, you know, varying perspectives and, and different industries and crafts that I'm always trying to look for the different, like different parallels mm-hmm. and like something like that, just that mindset and that approach to the training can be used in so many different applications oh, yeah. that uh, I'm, I'm hoping for the listeners, but I mean, for myself personally, I, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, like that, that, I mean, even a presentation, it, it, it comes down to just really knowing like you said those core pillars and the stress reduction i think that accompanies that knowing that you know what i can recover 
should, I'm thinking if someone asks a really tough question, right? And I'm trying to draw the parallel. Okay, you can navigate over to here because you've done that work, right? Yeah. It seems very, uh, very similar. Well, the things, the thing, you know, what makes people uncomfortable is the unknown. Sure. Right? So your job as a performer or a speaker or a leader is to mitigate for the unknown as much as possible. Yeah. So if you know how you're going to react in any given circumstance, then that, at least it gets you a little bit closer towards not freaking out in the moment. Exactly. You know, and yeah. that's, uh, that can be helpful. Sure. Um, before we jump into some of your personal routine um, and practices, I should say, we talked about this earlier, but there was, there was someone from my office that wanted me to ask you a question. And, uh-huh. and I'd, I'd love to, to put it out there because I think it's fascinating. Because you, you can think of a whole group of musicians coming together or binding together technically and from the music perspective. And you've talked a lot about individual mindset. How, as a leader, do you bring that group together mentally and for them, you know, to play from the heart and from the emotions and all of that? I'd imagine that's a challenge. Yeah, it really, it is, um, it's extraordinary. Um, And and, and that's why um, uh, conductors are so remarkable. Sure. Um, we, we just actually had a, a wonderful conductor uh, on, on the podium this past weekend. Her name is Gemma New, and she did the Shostakovich Fifth Symphony. And she, um, because of the way the schedule worked out, she only had two rehearsals. And this is something that usually you would have three, maybe four rehearsals before you put on the concert. So it was just two okay. rehearsals and then the concert on Saturday night. And she was someone who was so, she's very young. Um, but she was so wonderfully self-assured in the way that she understood the score, the way that she communicated with the musicians in the rehearsals to help guide them towards what she was asking of them so that she could have her sort of interpretive imprint on the, on the work. And what, what happens with a group of musicians, um, you know, if you have 100 musicians on stage, all of whom have had a background similar to mine, but in, in many instances, like more extraordinary than mine. Like th- these are people who really um, are, are some of the most uh, extraordinary musicians around and they are high performance athletes. Sure. Um, it's the same kind of discipline um, that goes into Olympic training. But for, those, for that collection of people to willingly cede their own musical authority into the hands of a single person they really have to trust that you know what you're doing, right? <laughs> and so there really is, there really is um, probably a 30-second window when a, an orchestra meets a new conductor. There's literally 30 seconds of rapport that is established one way or another. And sometimes you just can't put your finger on it, but it's electric. Okay. Uh, and with our incoming music director Gustavo Jimeno, um, we 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 saw a lot of that electricity, okay. where um, where you know right away from the gestures, from the way in which the person is um, is expressing themselves through their hands, through the tempo, through the way in which they're shaping a phrase without using words. Sure. Um, it taps into the non-verbal part of musicians that um, is where you want to be, right? You can't, you can't really talk about music so much. You can say things like, make this eighth note 
shorter or woodwinds play louder here. And a lot of the work is that kind of specific balancing. But overall, you're, you're literally painting a picture with the gestures of a conductor and the invisible sound that's popping out from the sure. orchestra. And mm -hmm. so the way you keep those people together and moving in the same direction and being willing to exert that kind of um, emotional output is by making it fun for them, right? They're on stage because they love doing this. Yeah. And so making sure that from an artistic expression standpoint, it's, it's like the quality is, is top notch. Um, but there's also a kind of a really great conductor has a way of seeding authority to the larger ensemble so that it's not about you will do it my way and here's the tempo and um, in an egomaniacal sort of way. Yeah. You know, you can, you can imagine the great Toscanini stereotype, right? Sure. The way to really do it is to be of service to the music and to get out of the way because chances are the musicians, they're only going to need a handful of guideposts to make the concert really quite spectacular. Okay. And your job is to is to heighten their ability to do that collectively, and that's 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 a really that's a really cool job. And so, I mean, I get to be the CEO of the Toronto Symphony. I do not get to be the guy on the podium conducting the orchestra. Fair. And um, and I'm 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 glad because I think it's probably the most difficult job in the world. I can only imagine. I mean, thirty seconds. Like I, I can and I can understand that. And it's um, again, there's so many parallels to other other areas in life. So then, so, so what is it like being the CEO of, a, of an orchestra? I mean, or the, the whole organization. I mean, what's, what, what's that like? And then coming from, I know you spent a lot of time in the academic world. Mm -hmm. um, seems like specifically, obviously, around music and, and, and arts. Um, like, what are the parallels there? So... Um it's, it, is, it, is a, it is a fascinating job because something like the Toronto Symphony Orchestra is essentially a public trust. Okay. Um, we, are, we are here to bring music to the GTA and to wherever we might tour. And we have in our DNA a real sense of responsibility around not, not presenting great music because it's great or elite or really important, but because it's, it's stunning and transformative and because it can actually have a real, I think, positive impact on, on your, one's mental fitness, right? Sure. And, and so the job itself is, is um, like any leadership job, right? Where you have different constituents that you want to inspire to be better than they think they can be themselves. You have difficult decisions to make around um, resource allocation. Sure. Uh, there's very few businesses that are actually so flush that they don't have to worry about risk management. Mm -hmm. We have to pay a lot of attention to maximizing our opportunity to earn money through ticket sales. Yeah. Which means sometimes we have to make compromises on the kinds of artistic programs we might want to put on. Like okay. I might be a great lover of. Uh, very acerbic contemporary music and think that we should have a festival and the critics would be like, oh yeah, that's fantastic. They would love it because it's new and now and funky and different. But if only a couple hundred people come, then that's not necessarily success for the organization. Sure, sure. So defining what that kind of success really is such that you can 
um, have enough of a successful financial platform to do the things, to, to, to do the dreams that you want, to actually make sure that you're out in the community. Um, mm. That's really important. And, and, and each of those avenues requires like a different type of person with a different set of skills that you have to have a relationship with. So yeah. I need to know what it's like to be a violist in the violin section, a music librarian. I need to know what it's like to be the number two person in the marketing department, what it's like yeah. to be a fundraiser. I need to put myself into the, the headset of being a board member who is a, a, a volunteer who, who doesn't have to be here, right? They're actually, they're not, only, sure. they're not only giving their time, they're giving an awful lot of money to be a board member. And, and so being in a position where you're required to jump to a bunch of different, almost different psychological mindsets, yeah. um, it's, it's wonderful. It can, be, it can be a little exhausting sometimes. Of course. Um, but but it's, I think the, uh, the work is alleviated by the, the thrill of the performances themselves or even at intermission, just talking to people about um, what it felt like to yeah. be in the concert hall or what it felt like to, to I mean we, we actually we had an event just a couple of weeks ago in Yorkville at an Italian restaurant that was it was our, our young professional group basically okay and about 120 of us took over this restaurant and we had our concert master and uh, clarinetist and a pianist play a series of pieces uh, like a 20 minute concert with people just standing around drinking beer yeah and it was it was it was fantastic it's absolutely fantastic. So, like being able to live in that world and have a byproduct be, I'm required to listen to great musicians play great music all the time, and with people that are enjoying it. Like, I think what could be better? Yeah, it's got to be so rewarding. And now more than ever, in, in like in this day and age, where we're, you know, more and more disconnected, one on one or in person, I should say. Um, I mean, I, I went to a performance end of last year. Specifically, my, my wife and my wife was gone with the with our baby, uh-huh. and I did a full day in the City of the Arts and capped it off. I went to this uh, to the symphony by myself, yeah, and just took it in. And even with Keo, I mean, our, our a big of our, a lot of our goals here is to go from online to offline, right? Is mm-hmm. how do you get those in person experiences? You can't, you know, you still you can't replace yeah that that energy, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I can only imagine the the rewards of that alone um, must be amazing. It is, and I, w- I wish I wish I could find this the silver bullet that would um, in a in a non geeky or threatening or patronizing way would convey that to um, to more and more people. Because I do think that I think I think I said before like. Um, any kind of live musical experience can be restorative. It could be, mm-hmm. you know, it could be a, a, a jazz trio or a late night cabaret, or it could be, you know, it could be Drake or The Weeknd. Pick your thing. Yeah. But the whole point is that you get with other people and you have a shared emotional experience. Yeah. And, and that sharing is the point of connectivity. And, and that's, you know, you don't get that on Instagram when you're in your room and it's dark at night by yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. So uh, I'm going to start wrapping up. But one thing I did want to ask is all the we talked a lot about your training as a as a performer. You know, what are some of the practices or some of that training that has actually transitioned into your your current role and your current routine as the, as a CEO? Um, and just human and just a dad and you know yeah. husband. <laughs> 
Well, it's it's um, <laughs> so I learned an awful lot about life by playing in a string quartet and being the worst member in the string quartet. So you've got four musicians with you: first violin, second violin, viola, and cello. And when I was in high school, I was a freshman, and I was put in a quartet with all seniors, and so I was the second violinist. And they were all just like worlds beyond me. And I very quickly learned, I think, life lessons that I really do try and carry with me on a regular basis. One is the job is to show up ready to play, know your part, show up and be um, ready to jump in at a minute's notice with an ability to demonstrate you did your homework. And the second thing is sure. to listen really, really closely, not only to yourself, but horizontally, right? Like mm -hmm. you could be in a string quartet and play your solo really brilliantly and it would have no impact if it weren't lined up with what the other musicians are supposed to be doing at the same time, right? So that, that sense, point. yeah, that being an individual within the context of a larger ensemble, I think is, 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 is important. Um, and I think the other thing that I've learned that I try to carry with me on a regular basis is, um, is to be uh, to be really careful about um, taking credit for things that that um, really certainly I didn't get here on my own, um, and there's a lot of remarkable people that have allowed me to um, lead the life that I've led, and so that kind of um, constant remembrance of how how many people go into creating um, a good citizen. Sure, uh, I think is is something I try to carry with me. Sure. All right, let's let's jump into your prompts. So uh, all guests on the show are asked this this last question. I should say second last question, um, and it's really to help guide the listeners and anyone that's using the app or anyone listening to the podcast just to you know kickstart their reflective journey. And uh, we you've you've already dropped a lot of great prompts, uh, which I, I knew you'd do that <laughs> throughout throughout this this conversation. Um, just naturally, but what are three reflective um, prompts that either circulate on a frequent basis in your life, or mm -hmm. that you've asked yourself to, you know, work through a problem or a big life-changing uh, event? Sure. So um, I think my first is to ask myself, what am I missing? Hmm. Um, or another way of saying that is, is, is what is my confirmation bias? Right? What is it that I think that I know really well, but actually I'm completely clueless about because um, I'm not listening and there is actually a hole in my perception. Okay. Uh, I think a, the second thing would probably be how does whatever choice I'm getting ready to make, how does it focus meaning? Mm. Right? Is it, is it something that is actually going to be meaningful? Does it give a heightened sense of meaningfulness to whatever it is? Or is it just superflu superfluous and sure. not worth paying attention to? Um, and the third thing is, um, I often think about what is the consequence of saying no? Powerful. Yep. We, um, we want to please and we want to say yes. And often we say yes because it's too difficult to say no. Um, sometimes it's easier to say no because you just don't want to get involved. And so on both sides of the coin, I think um, it's important to ask yourself, like, what really is the consequence of, of saying no? Sure. 
Well, I'm happy I got a yes for this interview. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Last question for you, Matt. You know, at the end of the day, you know, all said and done, what makes you smile each day? Oh, that's easy. Um, My wife, my daughter, my friends, my uh, mutt poodle, uh, the, the, the very simple normal domesticated things um in life uh my i I would probably say that my my favorite writer is marcel proust and his 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 big position um in remembrance of things past is that uh the, the the meaning to life the meaning to art really is all about perspective it's just your lens and if if you are focused on a you know uh, a pile of oranges on your table or a madeleine or your daughter's smile that's like you know that needs to be what it's all about and that needs to be the point of satisfaction oftentimes for the whole day love it i mean that's a great way to end this conversation so on behalf of myself but everyone listening i'd just like to acknowledge you for you know taking your your life path and clearly having a tremendous amount of passion and discipline and the mindset piece to this conversation just blows my mind um i feel like we do a few of these interviews on we've barely hit the (laughs) you know the topics that i wanted to to cover um but just you know thank you for for putting this work out there and and doing what you do each day because it's meaningful and music is a part of everyone's lives in so many different ways so keep rocking it out there and and thanks (laughs) for being part of this journey thanks for the opportunity i really appreciate it great to be here 